The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Anti-Modernist Reader on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Matthew Gasson, and on this episode, I'm joined by Father Chicada, Assistant Pastor at St. Gertrude the Great Parish, Westchester, Ohio. Hello, Father. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Pleasure to be here. In this episode, we are going to be discussing an article written by Father back in 1995 and again reproduced in 2006 that helps Catholics address the thorny issue of indefectibility. At some point, laity investigating traditional Catholicism will be confronted with an apparently Catholic hierarchy endowed with indefectibility, which is promulgating evil doctrines, disciplines, and liturgy to the entire church. How is one to resolve this problem? Well, this, as they say in America, was the $64,000 question that (laughs) mystified uh, Catholics from the beginning of the changes in the Church after the Second Vatican Council. Because, of course, those of us who were cradle Catholics in the old Church were uh, brought up with the uh, traditional understanding of the infallibility and indefectibility of the Church, that one could not uh, ever say as a Catholic that the Church could uh, teach you a false doctrine, or that the Church could give you some sort of an evil discipline. That was inconceivable for us. So this was the big problem and the big issue from the beginning, when the Vatican II changes started to hit, um, we started to see all of these different bad, all of these different terrible effects as far as loss of faith, uh, irreverent treatment of uh, the Blessed Sacrament, ecclesiastical discipline um, uh, falling apart, uh, etc. So having the old principle of the infallibility and indefectibility of the Church in, in our heads, we sought an explanation. But it was very difficult, uh, very difficult uh, to come by, and was not uh, one that was immediately apparent to those of us who were struggling with this issue. So um, the uh, understanding the 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 the, the uh, nub of the problem is uh, on one hand obviously evil disciplines and false teachings on the other hand it's coming from people who seem to have a hierarchical authority in the church and how do you uh, how do you deal with that so it it, it uh, 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 took us a while 
to figure out that uh, it's either one way or the other. That if you as a Catholic make a judgment on the nature of these doctrinal and disciplinary changes as being false and as being evil, that's also implicitly a judgment on the authority of those who promulgated these doctrines and, and, and disciplines. But the question is, how do you figure it out? And uh, or, or where you go, how do you reconcile this in terms of Catholic theology? And this was what uh, prompted the pamphlet Traditionalists, Infallibility, and the Pope. Many Catholics would probably say, oh, well, you can't possibly judge. You know, they would probably say, who am I to judge? But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but in, Especially in, now. <laughs> Well, the precedent has been set. Can't get away from that. In in all seriousness, given the the size and the weight of the problems, this is not a long document. Um, this is this is a fairly short uh, in your in your inimitable style. It's fairly short and to the point. Actually, almost well, pretty much half the document is appendices, references, uh, where you yes. you prove you prove time and time again that that you know, this is well researched and it is a is a valid position. You rewrote and republished this article um, when Ratzinger apparently ascended to the papal throne. Why was that? What was your origin of the article originally? Why was it originally created and why was it republished? Okay, well, uh, first of all, in the um, uh, this, in fact, was a pressing issue. But in the days before the internet, uh, researching a uh, pressing and a complicated issue was actually very difficult. You had to have access to different theological works, and the, the way that you got access to them was by going to a library. And if you were lucky enough that it was a big library, it had theological works that referred to the issues that you were looking at. So you had between the the, the uh, 60s to the 70s and uh, the 80s, uh, a, a gap in there where people are trying to, to figure this out and to get the correct uh, sort of information that they need theologically to resolve uh, these particular issues. Now, the question of a heretical pope was one that was, in fact, raised when uh, I was at uh, uh, a cone by the then Father Gerard de Laurier. He talked about that particular issue. But it was difficult to find out more information on this. You had a um, someone like uh, uh, Father Gerard de Laurier, and on the opposite side, you had people like uh, Michael Davies, who had a different concept of how things were to go, uh, that he promoted the idea that you could recognize someone as a Roman pontiff, but uh, resist him. So Davies decided to uh, write an article trying to refute the ideas of Sedevacantism, the ideas that a pope could in fact fall into heresy and then cease to be pope. And so he wrote a, a book called booklet called I Am With You Always. And this was uh, published in, in English, of course, by the Angelus Press. And uh, 
put forward a number of arguments that tried to refute this uh, concept or this this idea that a pope could fall into heresy and, and lose his office. So uh, this enjoyed a uh, uh, fairly decent circulation in the English-speaking world in the late 1980s. And uh, I was uh, approached in 1990 by a um, convert to uh, the faith, uh, whose name was Jerry Matitex. And Jerry was uh, uh, a convert from Presbyterianism, and he became a, a traditionalist, and he was uh, interested in seeing what a refutation would be to the arguments of uh, Michael Davies from the point of view of the state of the contest. So in uh, 1990, 1991, I started to research this issue in uh, the theological sections of different libraries, and uh, I produced the first draft of this pamphlet. Uh, actually, it was a, 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 a four-page version of it that I handed out to some people at a uh, traditionalist conference at which Michael Davies was uh, present. So actually, it, it, it but the essential text predates 1995, is much earlier in the 90s. So then I decided to publish it as a as a, a little pamphlet, and to publish all the appendices uh, with it. Uh, the appendices giving citations and, and quotes from uh, different theologians on the question of. Uh, heretical pope, whether or not that was a possibility, and answering some objections. So uh, in 1995, I, I published this as, as a pamphlet, and it enjoyed a very wide circulation. I have to say it's gone everywhere in the world. People have, have uh, gotten hold of it, have, have written uh, to us and asked for uh, copies of it. And uh, oh, I'm sure it's 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 uh, upward of 25,000 copies that we spread throughout the world, even before the the uh, days of the internet. In the 1995 version, I talked about some of the errors of John Paul II, who was, uh, of course, regarded as we know by many people as uh, the great conservative uh, or someone who was quite. Um, uh, favorable to traditional Catholic doctrine. Of course, uh, that is false, and so I discuss the general principles on the question of a heretical pope uh, in this particular pamphlet, and then uh, adduce some specifics about John Paul II. Uh, so I examined the uh, question in terms of uh, JP2, in 1995, and then when Ratzinger came along, of course, in 2006 or uh, 2005, he had the reputation of being a great conservative too. So we had to include some uh, material about uh, Ratzinger in 2006, and then answer some subsequent objections that uh, that had been made. So that that is uh, the background to the original work, and then the first, really, uh, the first two editions of uh, Traditionalist Infallibility of the Pope. Okay. At the start of the article, you point out, uh, and I quote, bad Catholics pick and choose what laws they want to obey. Yet at the same time, the very men who would appear to possess authority in the hierarchy command us to accept doctrines and a mass which harm the faith or have other disastrous effects. 
what is a Catholic to do? And you go on to say that the Novus Ordo does not believe in objective truth. And you respond to the idea that we are simply objecting to minutiae, that, that these things are really irrelevant. The Vatican II is not a substantial change and that really, in reality, we are being, uh, it's a storm in a teacup. What would you like to say about that? Well, that, uh, the reason I mention that is that was an objection that one frequently heard um, the, uh, uh, from the beginning uh, uh, reproach that people made that of all, all this, your worries about the liturgy, um, this is all these, this, the, you're sweating the small stuff. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, not something that you should really worry about. Or that uh, the question of, of um, uh, the uh, new teachings on, uh, on, on marriage, well, this is not, not really anything that's uh, sort of substantial. And ecumenism, this is just basically trying to get along nicely with, with other people. So the... Reject, the rejection that traditionalists had of uh, uh, of these different changes uh, in doctrine and discipline uh, tended to be in, in the minds of some people as as as, as things that are, are uh, basically uh, small or unimportant matters of detail, and so you have to get people like that to the point where they realize that no, it's not just a matter of detail; that is something substantial. Now I think that that in our own time, uh, by now in the, in the the age of uh, Bergoglio, that people are m- more willing to uh, admit that there are changes afoot that are in fact substantial. But at the beginning, it wasn't that way, so that's why he had to to tell them this. Although some people may admit now that there are changes that are substantial, that are manifesting themselves they still struggle with the idea of pulling this all back to vatican ii that actually what bergoglio is is doing now is essentially the full flowering or perhaps not even a vatican ii they, they, they have problems with that why is this well uh, people don't look and read text closely and they have a uh, when it comes to the documents of vatican ii it was a uh, revolution that was supposed to be and designed to uh, be launched in stages, and the way this was done was by uh, through ambiguity, as it were, getting the nose of the camel into the tent, and that's what the ambiguity in the documents of Vatican II and the subsequent teachings of the uh, so-called uh, uh, popes of Vatican II uh, did that it, it, it was a revolution in stages, and now we see the full flowering of that in Bergoglio. If you take just one example, uh, the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy uh, of Vatican II has many edifying things in it. However, there are these these uh, time bombs, as actually one of the fathers of Vatican II, Monsignor Jenny, uh, said that that were in the different documents that uh, allow changes in the liturgy that would have been uh, inconceivable uh, and would have horrified the majority of the fathers at Vatican II. So that's how 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 it, uh, uh, how it went that that you, you start with uh, 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 something small to get the nose of the camel in the tent, and that uh, eventually you get someone like Bergoglio, who's r- really a revolutionary and a bomb thrower. 
Well, that's certainly true. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the site Novus Ordo Watch refers to him as Chaos Frank. And uh, <laughs> yes, the, it's, it's absolutely true. It's, it's perfect uh, because the guy is a bomb thrower. There's not a week that uh, goes by where he doesn't do something crazy. For the other show that, that we do, Francis Watch, uh, how frequently I've said to Stephen Heiner at the beginning of the month, oh, it, it looks like there's not going to be too much. It's going to be a slow month. I don't know how we're going to get a show together. But then, sure enough, you know, uh, you, he does something like the, uh, uh, you know, the hammer and sickle crucifix. You know, uh, that's, yeah. that's the latest. Thing. So it's it's almost something like that as as the revolution goes onward. Before the show, I was watching the Twitter stream, and uh, I was looking at Father Despositor actually. He said that uh, Francis left all of the gifts in Bolivia, apart from that hammer and sickle crucifix. He actually took that with him. Uh, in fact, he did, and and um, uh, it, it turns out that he he said on the plane that he took it with him, and I wonder if it's going to go to the um, uh, to Santa Maria Maggiore and and take its place there with the beach ball on the altar <laughs> from his, his last South American trip. You know, As they say, you can't make it up. It's like the no. Sadie of Acanta satirist who is 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 in the basement of uh, the the, the uh, Vatican in the room where Paul VI used to be held prisoner, and that this guy is is uh, coming up with all of these crazy things for Bergoglio to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, I, I don't want to steal the thunder of Francis Watch, so I, I'm going <laughs> to move on there. I'll let you and his, his lordship and Stephen uh, chew over these. Uh, in in you know in in a few weeks time, um, right? So, <laughs> and I'll in, I'm sure I'll enjoy listening to it just as much as talking about it. So moving on to the idea that we've already established that you were not objecting to mere minutiae and that there was obviously a reaction to it. And the Vatican II certainly did promote evil and errors. Let's just go for a, just a very quick tour through some of the evils and errors that you mentioned in your article. And I just asked you to explain each very briefly. Could you just talk about the subsisted error very quickly? You know, the, uh, this is the new ecclesiology or theology of the church, an ecumenical theology. And you have the statement of Vatican II that, well, the Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. So obviously this um, the phrase was used subsist, uh, as a replacement for is the Catholic Church, which is the traditional teaching. And so this implies that uh, the true Church can exist uh, or subsist elsewhere in other religious bodies. So the, that uh, that's uh, one of your points. You see this also reflected in the subsequent legislation. You see it reflected in the new catechism. You see it uh, reflected in the 1983 Code of Canon Law. So it starts out here with the nose of the camel, and then you get the, the, the rest of the beast in the tent. The next, well, the next over that you mentioned is the primary and secondary ends of marriage and how they were reversed. Could you just quickly explain that for listeners? Sure. The traditional teaching is that the primary purpose of marriage is procreation, and the secondary ends of marriage are unitive. Uh, the unitive ends of marriage, the, the expression of love between the husband and the wife, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There are a lot of secondary the, the, um, ends of marriage or the remedy for concupiscence, et cetera. What you have in the Vatican II is the... Uh, documents place the ends of marriage on the same level and then reverse the order. 
So you get, it talks about uh, the uh, unitive and the procreative ends of marriage. So you don't have that distinction. So what, what happens is people say, aha, there's a tacit support for contraception because, well, what if I have a, there in my wonderful conscience, which is now my supreme guide, what if I have a conflict between my understanding of the mutual affection we should have for each other and procreation? Oh, I'm going to have a crisis in conscience over that. Uh, I'm going to to uh, choose uh, the love for my husband over procreation. So that's how that works. But it's again, it's uh, these small distinctions that get thrown out and that lead to other problems. The next thing that you mentioned, I'm actually going to read these out because for people who are listening who are thinking about these problems, perhaps people who are still in the nervous order and, and, and wondering what's going on here, I'm just going to mention very briefly the suppression of these concepts from the Paul VI missile. These were all suppressed. Hell, divine judgment, God's wrath, punishment for sin, the wickedness of sin is the greatest evil, detachment from the world, purgatory, the souls of the departed, Christ's kingship on earth, the church militant, the triumph of the Catholic faith, the evils of heresy, schism, and error, the conversion of non-Catholics, and the merits of the saints and miracles. Now, why were they all suppressed, Father? Because two reasons. First of all, ecumenism. That uh, uh, some of these, the idea of the church militant or the triumph of the Catholic faith, evils of heresy, obviously that's against one of the values of Vatican II, which is ecumenism. So those have to go. And the reformers told us explicitly uh, that uh, things which offended our separated brethren were going to be removed from the liturgy. The other uh, horn of the dilemma, or let's say the devil's pitchfork, is the uh, these ideas of hell, judgment, wrath. Uh, the modernists do not believe in these ideas, in these concepts, and they correctly perceive that modern man, the secular godless man, doesn't believe in them either, so they want to suppress these ideas from the liturgy, liturgy as well, and this is exactly what they did. So you you uh, find those those suppressions uh, very clearly in the new mass and the new missal when you compare that with the old texts. So that goes. All of those things go. And uh, having uh, suppressed them from the law of prayer, the lex arandi, uh, pretty soon they disappear from the lex credendi, from the the law of believing as well. Which of course is just what happened. So gone is the idea of teaching and admonishing and warning people. It, that's just, that's per se now. Uh, yeah, except if you're talking about saving water or something. And <laughs> that, that, that you're free to do in recycling. Um, uh, uh, one correspondent wrote to me and said the latest Bergoglio encyclical about uh, uh, that, that uh, uh, probably uh, Father Feeney would have, have, have fainted because Francis no doubt will go on to encourage uh, the baptism of desire as a replacement for baptism of water, to save water. So, uh, which seems like very tight theological reasoning to me for some <laughs> Well, it's consistent, if nothing else. It certainly is. <laughs> so let's move on to the the next era, communion in the hand. Why was that introduced? 
the uh, idea uh, the, they told us that it was going to be it was a restoring a primitive Christian practice, uh, which is uh, uh, basically a lot of nonsense. They don't have uh, it, these things are not all that certain as regards to documentation. But in any event, the real idea is to suppress the notion of transubstantiation in the real presence. That the people who were in favor of this did not believe in transubstantiation. I knew this for a fact. Uh, I lived through this particular period. They believed in transsignification, where the meaning of the bread changed, or transfinalization, where the uh, purpose of the bread changed but not in transubstantiation. So the idea is that, that we um, uh, change a liturgical practice to change people's faith. And those who f were the, uh, the advocates of communion in the hand uh, initially were the Protestant heretics who didn't believe in the, the sacred nature of the priesthood or in the, the real presence of Christ, body, blood, soul, divinity in the Eucharist. So that had to go. How did they do it? Because as a traditional Catholic, I would be horrified if somebody told me to receive communion in the hand. I would, I would refuse. People just the, the uh, you, you had uh, priests in uh, different countries who simply started to do it, and this has started to happen. I think as early as 1965. You know, when when the before even Vatican II had completely wound up. Uh, priests were doing this, and they were saying there's a new theology, a new understanding of uh, the Eucharist, that the primary presence now of, of Christ is in the people of God. We shouldn't be worried about such things. So when you have these, these ideas in the air, um, you indoctrinate people with these ideas. So it, it was not uh, officially approved by um, uh, uh, Paul VI, but eventually he, he approved it if the bishops' conferences approved it, and then now it has become a universal practice. So it, it is a um, uh, it, it was something that started out as implementation of these crazy theological ideas, and then eventually won official approval. And I suppose this all ties in with the last area that you mentioned, which is the teaching of what the mass is, i.e., an assembly supper concelebrated by all present, not just the priest, in which Christ is present in the people. Yes, that's the, 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 common, uh, the, the common idea that was taught, that before we had this, this bad idea of uh, the, the um, um, primary presence of Christ being in the Eucharist and of being some sort of sacrifice to make propitiation for sins, but now theology has evolved beyond that, and, and we're now adult about it, and we don't really... Uh, while that that belief was good, uh, you know, maybe in the 15 and 1600s, it's not good anymore. It doesn't speak to what modern man wants, so we have to change it. But that's that's exactly the rationale that was followed. Thankfully, I never had to read much of Ratzinger's prose, but for those who did, uh, yourself included, you do bring out some of the uh, some of the problems here, and I'd like to go through them. This is what Ratzinger had to say about the new ecclesiology. Uh, schismatic bodies, those are sects that are separated from the church, are particular churches united to the Catholic Church by close bonds. How could this be accepted by traditional Catholics? 
Well, it can't, <laughs> because you're <laughs> well, either yeah. part of the church or you're not part of the church. <laughs> and and uh, well, what do you have in, in someone like Ratzinger is he rejected uh, standard Thomism, and uh, in fact he hated it, and basically rejected sort of the, the pr- principle of identity and objective truth. So uh, for someone like him, uh, you can uh, a being can be and not be in the same in the same time in the same respect. Uh, so you can be somehow uh, part of the church but not part of the church, and uh, so it, he had he developed this this uh, theory of uh, the church that that I actually call Franken Church. That <laughs> you have have these different elements of, uh, of the uh, church. And that you have sort of a super church beyond it that is the people of God. Uh, so you have the people of God, and that the the uh, Roman Catholic Church is sort of part of the people of God. Uh, and you become part of the people of God by uh, baptism, and the whole people of God participate somehow in the office of Christ. So this is a, a new Vatican II teaching. And we started to hear this people of God nonsense right away from the modernists in the 1960s. And so Ratzinger developed this ecclesiology, ecclesiology meaning theology uh, of the uh, church, to include all sorts of uh, all sorts of different people who uh, are not really considered to be part of the Catholic Church because they're outside of the body of the church. And I suppose this all this all ties in with the second point that you make, which is Ratzinger's assertion that the universal church is the body of particular churches. Yes, that's the particular churches is one of the weasel words that they use, and um, that um, particular churches include uh, the systematic Greek Orthodox, for instance, uh, and. Uh, the, um, of schismatic churches, he says that, well, they have a wounded existence, but uh, nevertheless, the universal church becomes present in the particular church in all our essential elements. So what he's saying is, is well, yes and no at the same time, that, that um, uh, they're somehow wounded, but uh, nevertheless, the universal church is present in them. <laughs> so it's 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 all of these insane contradictory propositions, and people go for it because he because he 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 wears a silk and rabbits for outfits, but uh, you know in fact he's a in fact he's he's a heretic who just dresses well, you know? and, and, and so. Uh, this is the point I think you know that people miss that he's he's created this this uh, completely different ecclesiology this this uh, ecumenical ecclesiology. Okay, I'm afraid we have to do a few more of these uh, these errors here because you bring them out in your article, uh, so we need to we need to go through them. One becomes a member of the people of God by baptism, and this whole people of God participate in the office of Christ. Yes, that's that's the teaching of the New Catechism, and it's also the teaching of, Va- of Vatican II, that uh, the baptism makes you a part of the people of God. So what you have here is you have, in effect, a super church uh, uh, consisting of this people of God uh, that has different parts of itself, um, has have uh, uh, different parts have, have different... Uh, 
belief systems in effect. But that's all good because they're all part of the people of God. And of course, the the notion of it is the the this idea is um, uh, uh, this contradicts Catholic teaching because when you talk about the unity of the Church, Credo and Unum Ecclesiam, it's 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 uh, one in uh, doctrine. In, in in worship, and in, in government as well. And that those who are separated from her are separated from her and are not part of the Catholic Church. So what they did is they created a larger people of God category at Vatican II, and Ratzinger developed this, this uh, uh, Franken-Church theology uh, in order to uh, include all of these other bodies somehow. And this, and this is all for the purpose of ecumenism. Well, sure, and and it's all in the service of ecumenism. And then what you see is is while Ratzinger would do this in a somewhat deceptive way uh, and confusing way, because he was a very intelligent man. Uh, Ratzinger, there's no question, the great, great intelligent man, also very evil because of his his uh, modernist ideas. So he says he throws throws these propositions around um, in such a way to, um, in effect, confuse people and, and uh, who are distracted by the rabbit fur. But then uh, Bergoglio. Uh, comes along, and since he's he's not an intelligent man, and he doesn't wear rabbit fur and silk. Uh, in fact, he's an idiot uh, who just sort of says the first thing that comes into his head. He quite openly uh, teaches what these different doctrines mean, where he he talks about, uh, for instance, uh, the Anglican Pentecostal as his his brother bishop, and. Uh, he talks about uh, having, uh, you know, essential uh, uh, the, that in the essentials of, of faith that uh, that we are the same with these different evangelicals. So uh, he comes across quite differently, but he simply the uh, propositions that Ratzinger lays down to their logical conclusion. Yeah, I must say, as as an English person. I couldn't have been more offended by watching him receive a blessing from the so-called Archbishop of Canterbury. Oh. It couldn't be more offensive than that. For somebody he purports to be the Roman Pontiff to drop so low as to receive a blessing from somebody who Leo XIII has already declared doesn't even have any orders. Yes, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, for, for whose faith people were martyred, you know? Uh, yeah. it's, 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 uh, absolutely outrageous. So that affects you that way. And then, uh, for an American, when you see the, the these American Pentecostals that he, he, um, uh, dealt with Kenneth Copeland, um, and, and took him seriously, those people are clowns. Uh, and it's a the, the, this materialistic um, uh, success gospel, uh, but yet um, Bergoglio is, is doing high fives and, and knuckle wraps with these people. So it's, it's uh, really outrageous. But it's, it's the basis for his knuckle wraps uh, uh, and high fives. Uh, and the basis for for Bergoglio talking about these these Protestant sects the way that he does is the theology of Ratzinger. Yes, that, yeah, that's open. That's why we're talking about it. On one hand, Bergoglio can go and talk Marxism to the South Americans. On the other hand, he's talking success gospel to the North Americans. 
Yeah, and it's all the it's all the same because it's all ecumenism, and this all come and this word didn't come from Ratzinger, but this is uh, this is what Ratzinger taught, and I'm sure Bagele believes it just as strongly, if not more so. Sure, that that it um, whatever you seem to believe is uh, basically fine as not as long as it's not the traditional Catholic faith that you treat as exclusive. A really horrible error. Ratzinger says. Christ's body, the church, is wounded. Where does this come from? <laughs> or is that too much of a question? <laughs> yeah, well, the thing is that it comes from is his, his uh, heresy because he considers these other people to be part of the church. Uh, in a real sense, the uh, uh, those who... who uh, participate and believe in these these different heresies he considers to be part of the church and so uh somehow there there's a wound where there's not this this uh, um uh, unity on absolutely everything but ultimately it doesn't make any difference because it's a um these uh outfits are used as means of salvation by the holy ghost anyway which is also part of his his uh, teaching and the teaching of the new catechism so it doesn't make uh, uh any difference that they may be wounded or they may have a little head cold but uh, nevertheless they're going to survive as members of the church that's a very good point that that last point about the fact that these schismatic and heretical bodies our means of salvation, because at a stroke, it it ridicules all of the martyrs that suffered under Protestantism. Sure, it, uh, uh, absolutely, because they, they suffered for nothing. Uh, that is the logical um, uh, the logical conclusion. Or Paul the Sixth, I think, said that the English martyrs were martyrs for religious liberty, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yes, which, he did. Yes, he did. Which no doubt would have come as a surprise to all of them that this is what <laughs> they were dying for. <laughs> I can imagine the wit of Thomas More, what he, he would have done with something as idiotic as that. But oh, there, there it is. Oh, Cardinal St. John Fisher, yeah, of course. He, I'm sure he would have had something to say about it. Oh, yeah. Um, and finally, um, and I see this a lot now, and it's crept into SSPX circles as well. They then not in terms of particular churches, but in in terms of being fully Catholic or partially Catholic. You know, we have we have full communion or partial communion. What is this all about? Because as a Catholic, my understanding is that you're either in communion with the Catholic Church or you're not. Uh, yeah, it's it's like uh, being partially dead or, or partially pregnant. That uh, the the uh, there, there there's a state that uh, is uh, uh, impossible. Because the Catholic doctrine is an integral whole, and you can't say that well, um, you can't say that it, it admits of of parts. Uh, that uh, uh, being Catholic, uh, being a member of the Church of Christ, somehow uh, admits of degrees or of parts, uh, because it's integral. It's 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 either yes or no, and uh, that indeed is is um, uh, you know the point of a the uh, uh, profession of faith and of of being a Catholic, that uh, uh, you are uh, one with the Church. Uh, So the the idea of degrees of belonging simply doesn't exist. And as you point out in your article, the other 13th said simply, 
heretics are outside of the Catholic communion and alien to the church. That's the end, yeah. that's the end of the conversation. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to the next part of the article, we then move on to error and evil. You talk about the fact that the church cannot give evil, but first of all, you discuss the difference between error and evil. Could you please explain that for the listeners? Uh, sure. An error is a contradiction or a change in uh, the substance of teachings, okay? So that uh, uh, if you're talking about error, you're talking the level of, let's say, faith. We could say that. And the other thing is evil, and that is, uh, if you want to make a parallel, moral. In other words, something in conduct, in conduct that's offensive to God or that harms the salvation of souls. So we all know that we learn from the catechism, okay, infallibility and faith and morals. So this is the, the, the uh, idea, an error is uh, against uh, 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 faith, and that an evil, by that we're talking about something that, that has to do with morality or conduct, okay? So that's, okay. that's, that's our distinction there. The next problem, uh, one that I hear, I'm sure you hear it a lot too, the one that I hear a lot, is we only need to think about ex-cathedra statements. We, we don't, there's no infallibility beyond that. And they haven't said anything ex-cathedra yet, so, so we're just going to carry on doing what we're doing. What's the problem okay, with that's that? The most common, that's the most common reply that you would hear from the recognize and resist camp. The R and R people, um, and you would—that um, uh, is something that's, that's very old in, in the traditionalist movement. That the idea that infallibility is something that's, that's very, very restricted, and you only essentially you only have to pay attention to the Pope if he puts uh, ex cathedra ex cathedra stamp on something. And he doesn't hasn't done that so far, so therefore we're not uh, obliged to um, uh, we're, we're not obliged to accept it. So that's a very old trend in the trad movement. And um, I remember basically hearing that from Archbishop Lefevre. And w what struck me at the time, and that was in the seminary at Cone, was I thought, well, you know, there may be something to that because. If Lefebvre, who is uh, the right wing, as it were, says this, I also heard this in my modernist seminary, too, when we were uh, studying ecclesiology using the text of Hans King. So Hans King <laughs> said the same thing, too. So I figured if Lefebvre and uh, King agreed on something, well, it must be fairly certain. But however, uh, it's completely false. And uh, Lefebvre was completely wrong. Uh, and this is something that uh we learn later that the church is uh or her teaching is infallible when it's part not only of the solemn magisterium uh ex cathedra statements and conciliar canons um but also universal ordinary magisterium so when it comes to the teaching of a particular doctrine uh, if the Pope and the bishops all teach it, then it is supposed to be, um, uh, it, it is uh, part of the uh, universal ordinary magisterium of the Church, and Vatican I teaches that as well is infallible. So that's as far as teaching. The other thing 
is that uh, when it comes to conduct or uh, morals, again, we can say that the, the church is also infallible uh, when she promulgates what is called a universal disciplinary law for the whole church. The reason she is uh, infallible, theologians tell you, is that Christ's authority could not prescribe something that is evil or that is harmful, directly harmful to souls, that harms faith or, or morals. So the difficulty that you have is the changes in doctrine uh, appear uh, to come from people who possess the authority of the Church, A, and B, the uh, laws prescribing the new Mass, the new Code of Canon Law, uh, etc., uh, are also universal disciplinary laws, which would be covered by the Church's infallibility. But all trads believe that these things are evil. So how do you reconcile that, the, the, the idea of what is of errors, in effect, in universal ordinary magisterium and evil prescriptions in, say, liturgical laws and disciplinary laws with the idea of the infallibility and the indefectibility of the Church? So that's where we come up against the problem. Another argument that I use with people who say that is, well, actually, there were no ex-cathedral statements until 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. So all the early martyrs, should they have, have sat there in their dungeons getting getting ready to be fed to the lions, thinking, well, I don't know, there aren't any solemn papal pronouncements that says we have to believe all of these things. So those lions, they look pretty fierce. And, you know, we don't have to. So doesn't it doesn't it throw that into doubt? Well, of course it does, because there's nothing, there's nothing, you end up with nothing uh, in effect that you're, you're bound to believe in. Or you get to pick what you think you uh, should believe in. And that, of course, is wrong, because the, the reason that you have the teaching church is that the, the, the church tells you what to believe and uh, provides a sure guide for belief and for your conduct as well. I think to sum up the first part of this show, it's just worth saying that we've established that it's impossible that the errors and the evils that we're discussing could have proceeded from what is, in fact, the authority of the Church. It's impossible. It's not doubtful. It's not questionable. It's not inconclusive. It's not debatable. It's impossible. And what would be the point of the Church if it could err in this manner? That's exactly it. The Church would end up failing in... in um, uh, failing in her mission, so one would ha one would have to uh, come to and uh, figure out uh, some sort of an explanation for this that is consonant with Catholic do doctrine. Once you make the judgment that there are errors and there there are evils that have uh, uh, officially uh, came from people who supposedly have authority in the church, then you have to figure out the authority problem. We would like to remind you that you are listening to the anti-modernist reader, Traditionalists, Infallibility and the Pope on the Restoration Radio Network. I am your host, Matthew Gaskin, and I'm joined by Father Anthony Stricada. And today we've been discussing the problem of how to reconcile an apparently defective hierarchy with indefectibility. We want to remind you that this anti-modernist reader show is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail at truerestoration.org. Okay, Father, so moving on to the next part of the article, you begin to talk about the loss of office through heresy. 
you talk about the decrees of heretical or schismatic bishops becoming void and empty of authority for Catholics. Could you give some examples, in, uh, historical examples, of when this, this sort of thing happened? For instance, let me take an example from, from England, okay, that um, with the arrival of Protestant heirs in England, you had clerics who were in different positions of uh, authority there who had been, let us say, legitimately appointed, uh, who uh, adopted these uh, new errors and, and these false teachings. So you had, for instance, Thomas Cranmer, who was the uh, Archbishop of, of uh, Canterbury. Uh, he had been validly consecrated and so on. And uh, But at a certain point, he became, a, in effect, a Lutheran in his, uh, in his teaching. And he started to uh, publicly promote his, uh, f- these false ideas, these false teachings. He continued to claim to be the uh, legitimate Archbishop of Canterbury, and he, you know, being an um, uh, Englishman and having, of course, as all Englishmen do, excellent taste, he walked around in a very nice <laughs> cope and <laughs> spoke a beautiful form of the English language and uh, uh, held himself out as the Archbishop of Canterbury. But uh, from the point at which he became a heretic, he lost his authority over Catholics because uh, uh, public heresy puts you outside the church. So Catholics were not obliged to uh, treat him as the Archbishop of Canterbury and certainly not obliged to submit themselves to his decrees. So that's a, a uh, uh, historical example that's, that's rather near home, I would say. I'll quote a short piece of the article here. The, that principle being that public defection from the Catholic faith automatically deprives a person of all ecclesiastical offices he may hold. You say, if you think about it, it makes sense. It would be absurd for someone who did not truly profess the Catholic faith to have authority over Catholics who did. The principle that someone who defects from the faith automatically loses his office applies to pastors, diocesan bishops, and other similar church officials. It also applies to a pope. Now, this is where the sticking point is, because people are perfectly happy to accept that any any Catholic from layman through a seminarian, a priest, a bishop, even a cardinal. People are perfectly happy, I think, to accept that anybody of in whatever position, if they become a public heretic, that they that they're automatically they excommunicate themselves. But the real sticking point is the Pope. People really struggle with this one and this is where people dig their heels in and they don't want to move. Why is this such a problem for people? Why do that? Well, we'll go on to we'll go on to look at, at some of the writers, you know, very notable writers who have said that this is perfectly possible. Why do people not want to admit this? Well, because as as uh, Catholics, at least uh, particularly from my own generation, that you were brought up with the uh, correct idea that uh, as a good Catholic, you had to submit to the Roman pontiff, and that the Roman pontiff could not steer you wrong when it came to uh, uh, faith and when it came to morals. So you have this this, uh, natural inclination, a good inclination as a Catholic, in uh, 
uh, normal times in the church, that you have to submit to the Roman pontiff. So the idea that um, possibly he could um, uh, steer you wrong or fall into heresy or anything like that and, and lose his office is something that is uh, that emotionally is very difficult to take. And I certainly understand that because I was someone who defended uh, Paul VI for 10 years, even though I was skeptical about some of the things that were coming out of, uh, uh, with his official approval from uh, the Vatican. So you have there's, there's, there's this, this weight, the default setting is that, well, um, you know, after all, the guy is the Pope and that we're supposed to submit to him, uh, etc., and so the, the the thought that he could um, uh, lose his office somehow through heresy is uh, emotionally is a big jump. Mm -hmm. On the flip side of that coin, I know a few Catholics. They're still within the SSPX. They're still within the recognized Resist Brigade. And these are these are older people. These are people who were around a long time before the changes came in, and remember remember Catholicism as it used to be. And they said that actually the Pope has no direct bearing on their life. That one of the one of the people said that the Pope has no direct effect on his life day to day. How can this be, or is this the effect of the RNR position? Well, yes. The, the, uh, uh, the idea is that you have minimized the uh, importance of submission to the Roman pontiff and to his teaching. And in fact, it is a um, it's standard pre-Vatican II teaching that uh, apart from infallible pronouncements and even uh, apart from um, uh, the uh, from teaching the Pope and bishops that would be considered universal ordinary magisterium, that you uh, have an ob uh, obligation as a Catholic to uh, adhere to uh, the day-to-day uh, -day teaching, as it were, of the uh, Roman pontiff, because he has a, a special uh, authority uh, apart from the infallible authority that comes from, from uh, Christ. So the, there, there's a, a difficulty, and a great difficulty, a theological difficulty, in them saying what, in them saying that. Even um, if you take his, his, um, if you take, say, an encyclical, that you have an obligation of religious submission, even if if there are matters in encyclical that are not. Um, that the Pope is not infallibly defined as a Catholic, is very clear you have to uh, uh, religiously submit to the uh, teachings of, of uh, Roman pontiffs. So the thing is that the R&R &R camp um, has, uh, in effect, been, been uh, promoting something that is, is contrary to uh, what a Catholic is, is obliged to do. I mean, you would, if you apply the old principles, you know, when Bergoglio says, you know, you have to recycle and save water, uh, you have to have religious submission to, uh, you know, that uh, particular teaching. You know, it's the R&R, &R, the, the uh, recognize and resist, could also stand for R&R, &R, uh, recognize uh, and recycle, you know, <laughs> so that would have to be part of it. So it's, it's, it's a different... Um, 
concept then that these people have of um, their obligation toward the teaching of the Roman Pontiff. So essentially, this so-called third way of recognizing and resisting, neither Novus Ordo nor Sedificantist has created in the mind of this person I know, or has turned the turned the mind of this person I know from being completely Catholic to after years and years of recognizing and resisting, being totally indifferent. I do know that one of the recogni- one of the recognize and resist crowd um, within the, re- the so-called resistance um, says that well, you know, it, it, it you hear a lot of it. It's it's really just an opinion. You don't have to worry about papal infallibility, and it doesn't really matter. Yet at the same time, he says, well, I don't like the term recognize and resistor. He doesn't like it. So would it be more, I mean, this is my just my opinion, but would it be fairer to call him an indifferent? He's indifferent about papal authority. He doesn't, he doesn't really care. Well, it may be in that particular case, but one of the things I found is that the people who are in the Pius X camp will say that, yes, it is a question to recognize and resist. That, uh, you know, we recognize him as a pope, but we resist uh, him when he says things that are not Catholic. So the, 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 your, your friend, I think, would be uh, sort of exceptional, but I think most would concede that that's an accurate, that the, the R&R label is actually an accurate description of the position. And it was not intended to be, you know, an inaccurate um, um, or, or a dig. It's, it's, it's what, in fact, uh, they do if you analyze it. I completely agree. You go on in the article and you talk about the loss of papal office and you discuss the various theologians and canonists who have talked about this. And one of the people you start off with is St. Robert Bellarmine. Mm-hmm. And the quote, the quotation given uh, from De Romano Pontifice, I will read it out here. It's, a pope who is a manifest heretic automatically, that is per se, ceases to be Pope and head just as he ceases automatically to be a Christian and a member of the church. Wherefore, he can be judged and punished by the church. This is the teaching of all the ancient fathers who teach that manifest heretics immediately lose all jurisdiction. Why is that so important? Why did you start off with that quotation in particular? Why is it so important? Well, uh, uh, two points. Uh, first of all, it's St. Robert Bellarmine, and uh, his teaching on this particular point uh, influenced um, uh, virtually all of the theologians who came after him who wrote about the question of a, a heretical pope. So he, he was, uh, I suppose we would call him a big gun, okay? He was the, <laughs> uh, uh, he's like the equivalent, I don't know if you know the uh, old movie, The Guns of, Na- uh, the, uh, the Guns of Navarone, but I mean, yes. he's, he's uh, that, he's <laughs> that type of, of a voice in theology. So, uh, and he didn't just sort of, um, uh, you know, toss this opinion out in sort of a tweet or something like that. But uh, he, act- he actually uh, wrote a, this, this is part of his, his great treatise, De Romano Bondivice, which is a defense of the Catholic teaching on the um, uh, authority uh, of uh, both the legal and the teaching authority of the Roman Pontiff. So this is very, very carefully thought out. And what we gave you here is just a, a little thing from chapter uh, 30. 
So it's important because it's Bellarmine. Secondly, it's important because if you step back from it, it simply puts in uh, to practice a general theological principle, which no one disputes. And that is to be a part of the church, you have to A, be baptized, and B, profess the Catholic faith. If you cease to profess the Catholic faith, the second point, that you, uh, if you do that publicly, you put yourself outside the church. Bellarmine, what he is doing is simply applying a general principle across the board. And he cites uh, previous authorities who um, maintain this. And then um, uh, you see uh, theologians after Bellarmine uh, adopting exactly this position. Because some theologians, well, actually, you, you refer to it later, some theologians don't even consider the fact that it was possible, but this, as you point out, this view is later abandoned. Anybody who's read The Life of St. Robert Bellarmine will know that he was not, well, he, he was a fairly busy man. He had a lot to do. Why would he spend time, valuable time, on things that were not even theoretically possible? Well, exactly. And uh, because, well, he, uh, in his, his um, Dear Romano Pontifice, he wanted to give the arguments and consider everything from, a, um, from all the angles, because he expected that his opponents, uh, the Protestants, would uh, do exactly that. And uh, anticipating, for, a, uh, for instance, the idea that, uh, well, what if a pope, uh, as an individual, falls into heresy? So he answers it, and he gives the the, the Catholic teaching uh, based on the authorities he's consulted to respond to that question. So it's 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 not a it's not angels dancing, uh, as it were, on the head of, head of a pin. It was an objection that he anticipated would arise. You go on to also cite uh, the likes of Cajetan Suarez Torquemada. Um, not names that perhaps the average layperson is familiar with. Um, you also quote uh, Vance Vidal. The, all the quotations are included in the appendix to the article, but the, the Vance Vidal uh, quotation is worth reading. He says, Through notorious and openly divulged heresy, the Roman pontiff, should he fall into heresy, by that very fact, that is ipso facto, is deemed to be deprived of the power of jurisdiction even before any declaratory judgment by the church. A pope who falls into public heresy would cease ipso facto to be a member of the church. Therefore, he would also cease to be head of the church. Now, this is significant because a lot of people, well, you hear it all the time, you can't judge, you don't know, you can't make that judgment. And what I always say is, I'm not judging his guilt. I don't know if Bergoglio is doing, or Bob Atzinger, or Botua, or Montini, were doing what they were doing out of malice. I have no idea if they're guilty or not. But I do know that they're not, I do know they're not Catholics. That, that, that much is obvious. And I would have to, I'd have to be willfully blind to assert that they are Catholics. Yes, it's a question of of, of uh, separating heresy from the truth. What what is uh, what is the Catholic faith, and what is not? Uh, what is incompatible with the Catholic faith? And um, uh, surely, it, it is absolutely certain that the individual Catholic has the uh, right to uh, right to do that. And that is all, in fact, that uh, that we are do- doing. 
The uh, one little point, uh, by the way, that we would make here is that, uh, too, that uh, you occasionally will hear people say that, well, uh, okay, Vernon Vidal is talking about a, a declaratory judgment. How does that, uh, from the church, how would this play into it? Well, the, the people like like Vernon uh, Vidal who talk about something like this uh, have in uh, mind a situation where uh, you had a uh, pope who himself becomes a heretic, uh, and this becomes publicly manifest. But those around him immediately recognize that the College of Cardinals. Uh, etc., and and the whole church recognizes it. Um, and uh, okay, he's fallen from office. Um, what we have to do is we have to go and we have to elect a new pope. So in order to do that, um, we have to make a uh, declaration that the new guy that we're going to elect is really the pope, uh, not the old guy. So that's all that this this uh, refers to. That uh, theologians like Vernon Vidal say that you have uh, the heretical pope manifestly heretical falls from office automatically, and then uh, 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 subsequent to that, uh, we have to elect a new pope. So we have to canon law requires us to declare that uh, the new guy is going to be the pope. So that's all that that means. It's simply a, 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 a provision of canon law, uh, canon 151. Thank you for clarifying that. You go on next to talk about even the post-Vatican II canonists concede that the Pope would lose office if he became a manifest heretic. Uh, yeah, that was the. Uh, there's a commentary in the 1983 Code that speaks just about uh, that, that that mentions. Uh, the opinion of classical canonists on uh, this uh, particular issue. So it's it's one that was not even uh, that's not even dismissed by uh, the post-Vatican II guys. So they they recognize that this theological opinion is is widely accepted. So, so even if you're of the um, the Vatican II opinion, you you still can't get away from the idea that uh, that the Roman Pontiff cannot lose his office. Through heresy, mm-hmm. you talk about Popes Innocent the Third and Paul the Fourth, and some of the weighty contributions they've made to this subject. Pope Innocent the Third, first of all, says, "Still less can the Roman Pontiff boast, for he can be judged by men, or rather, he can be shown to be judged, if he manifestly loses his saviour in heresy, for he who does not believe is already judged." Again, this is a significant problem for the recognize and resist crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and precisely, if you have a little historical understanding um, uh, of who Innocent III was, I mean, uh, he was uh, considered the uh, apex of, of examples of, of uh, medieval pontiffs who uh, consolidated, uh, protected, and uh, enunciated the concepts of, of the the authority of the Roman pontiffs. So, I mean, this guy is not a, he was not exactly some sort of a uh, weakling and shrinking violet <laughs> who, who had a, uh, you know, uh, adversely affected uh, self-image where he, he thought really very little of himself in his office, <laughs> etc. And uh, that, you know, life was simply a question of I'm okay and you're okay, and, and that's fine. <laughs> no, I mean, he was, he was uh, someone who really uh, asserted the authority 
of the Roman pontiff, as did Bellarmine, of course. So for him to say something like this is extremely significant, that to say that the Roman pontiff loses his savor uh, by falling into heresy, he is already judged by God. So this is something that, uh, you know, you can't say that, okay, uh, this idea of a pope falling into heresy, it's, well, it's maybe some idea that the, that uh, Bellarmine came up with, and this this uh, crazy uh, crackpot on Ohio, Chicago, uh, promoted uh, you know, throughout the world. But it's, it's Innocent III, for heaven's sake. You know? So uh, uh, this is something like this is extremely significant because he he admits the possibility, right? He admits the possibility. So it's not that crazy. In fact, it's not crazy at all it, because it, it, it conforms with this basic principle that faith, profession of faith, is part of your membership in the church. If you publicly cease to profess the faith through falling into heresy, you put yourself outside the church. Again, it's that same principle. Well, I think listeners to this show will probably concede that it's not crazy. If you want crazy, you need to go and watch what Mr. B is doing. But <laughs> uh, it's not crazy at all compared to that. Nothing is. Um, the next point that I would like to come on to is cum ex apostolatus, because it's thrown around a lot, and I get a lot of questions about it. One of the questions... Uh, first of all, what is, what is Comex Apostolatus? What, what, what was the document he wrote it, and what did it do? Okay, what we're talking about there is uh, that Pope Paul IV, um, uh, in um, 1559, um, promulgated this document, Cum Ex Apostolatus Officio. And the situation was this, that we're in the, the midst of all these religious controversies in Europe, heresy, etc., there was a cardinal in the, in, in the, the uh, college, um, uh, Giovanni Morone, who uh, Paul the uh, whom Paul IV uh, thought was suspect, uh, was a crypto-Lutheran, perhaps. So he had him thrown in the clink, and uh, in in the uh, uh, Castle San Angelo, I think, and he promulgated this document, uh, Cum Ex Apostolatus Officio, that uh, uh, said that if um, it should ever appear that someone who has been elected a Roman pontiff had deviated from the Catholic faith or fallen into heresy, his election, even with the agreement and unanimous consent of all the cardinals, would be null, legally invalid, and void. Okay, so uh, and then he went on to say that his his acts would be um, uh, void, etc. He would not be a true pope, etc., etc., etc. And he uh, promulgated this document and had it signed by all of the cardinals in the college. So this, uh, of course, uh, raised the possibility uh, again uh, confirms the possibility that you can have a heretic. Uh, who ends up on the throne of Peter? Uh, so it's it's not uh, again just that crazy guy in Ohio. It's uh, Paul the Fourth, for heaven's sake. So this this uh, at the very least demonstrates the possibility that a heretic could be elected. Okay. So the next question is, and this is a question that I've received from again people in the R and R crowd or, or a, a, a rebuff that has come from the R and R crowd. Uh, they've said Comex Apostolatus is superseded by the 1917 Code of Canon Law, so we can disregard it. 
All right. Well, the uh, first of all, you say this, that you can't disregard it because uh, it shows, uh, A, it is theologically possible that a pope taught that a heretic could end up on the throne of Peter. So that's the, the, the uh, first response. Uh, the second response is that, in, in fact, in Canon 188.4, the footnotes in the uh, Code of Canon Law, you will see that uh, the provision in the Code of Canon Law, in the, the new Code of Canon Law, Canon 188.4, refers specifically to cum ex apostolatus officio. And 188.4 says that public defection from the Catholic faith brings with it tacit renunciation of ecclesiastical office. So to the extent that that provision is included in the uh, code, uh, yes, that part of, uh, that part of um, uh, cum ex, ex apostolatus is included in the new code of canon law. Uh, thirdly, uh, you can, uh, one can uh, discuss uh, certainly the different details of cum ex apostolatus, in um, which uh, it's a long document uh, full of different legal language that talk about degradation from office and uh, removal, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the underlying principle is actually a principle of divine law. And that is that a heretic cannot possess uh, cannot possess papal authority, and that is in fact a matter of divine law. So the thing is that that uh, explicitly, uh, sure, it's not something that is part of the new code of canon law, but nevertheless, there are elements of it that are incorporated into the new code. But you can't poo-poo commix apostolatus. Uh, because of of the the uh, central principle that it enunciates. So, I, does that sufficiently, you think, answer your question? <laughs> well, as soon as you mention it as part of divine law, then there's no, there's no further conversation. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it, um, it, 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 what what it did is is it put into effect. Uh, uh, see, what you have in the code is is uh, you have uh, elements of ecclesiastical law that uh, things which are ecclesiastical law that show you how to implement divine law. So, for instance, uh, you, you have the commandment about the Lord's Day, keeping the Lord's Day holy. Well, the church, so that's the divine law. Well, the church comes along and says, okay, we're going to add to this. Uh, we're going to tell you that uh, we're putting this into effect by uh, uh, saying that you have to assist at Mass on Sundays uh, and uh, the Holy Day is appointed. Okay? So there, there, there are those two elements in it. So that's many points in the code are uh, like that. I would say no more questions, Your Honor, but I have to ask one more, seeing as I have been asked, <laughs> as I have been asked it. Um, the other, the other objection that was made was cum ex apostolatus is simply a matter of discipline. Uh, it's not a matter of doctrine. So I guess he, I guess this person was saying, so it's a matter of discipline in as much as you know, not, uh, not eating meat on Friday. Um, 
that sort of thing. These these uh, doing penance during Lent, this is simply a matter of discipline and it, and the election of. Can you possibly argue that the election of a Roman pontiff is simply a matter of discipline and doesn't affect doctrine? Well, uh, it, it's it's sort of an odd question and a little difficult to reply to odd questions when you're not sure exactly what the questioner is is uh, getting at. But no, it has. Cumex Apostolatus has disciplinary elements in it. Um, and, uh, you know, there are all these clauses and sub-clauses and qualifications, etc. So, yes, that's, that uh, is a, a question of discipline. But the um, uh, ultimately, the a principle that uh, it expresses is, in fact, a matter of uh, divine law. And the, um, uh, that a heretic cannot validly uh, become a pope. And that is, 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 um, uh, is the, the source of uh, the legislation in Comex Apostolatus, because faith is, is being part of, is, is a, a necessary to be a part of membership of the church, A. And then B, the um, uh, theologians who have written on the qualifications for becoming a Roman pontiff are very clear in saying that public heresy is, uh, is by divine law, something that excludes you from validly being elected pope. Mm -hmm. So to that extent, it is, to the extent it reflects that, it is divine law. That was the general thrust of the question. The, the, yeah. rebuff was, the rebuff was essentially, well, only concerns discipline, and even if it didn't, it's been superseded by the 1917 Code, so we don't need to think about it anyway, which you've demonstrated yeah. it hasn't been. Yeah, anyway. but, but uh, in, uh, in any event, the, the important thing to focus on with Comex Postulatus is that, A, it reflects the divine law, uh, as enunciated by uh, other theologians, is B. It certainly um, exp uh, it, it um, anticipates the possibility that you can can in fact get a heretic on the throne. So it's not that far fetched. Paul the Fourth said it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not the crazy guy in Westchester. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not that crazy guy. <laughs> no, not that crazy. <laughs> okay. We're getting towards the end of the article now, and you simply put it to Catholics that they are they're presented with two alternatives. Either the church has defected or men have defected. Now, given that we have to, by faith, exclude the idea that the church has defected, there's only really one there's only really one choice here. Could you could you explain that briefly? Sure. That that uh it the way that you come to a correct conclusion is by excluding things that are false. And the faith tells us that the idea that the church is defected is false. So that uh, points us in the other direction that, okay, men have somehow uh, defected, that these men don't have a uh, uh, have their authority. Okay, so it's like a... Uh, you know, something that you would find in, let's say, uh, American advertising. Uh, uh, you would find a big, glitzy uh, uh, neon billboard, you know, that's, that's shaped like a hand pointing you in this particular direction. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and <laughs> I've, I've seen what them. You, 
yeah, and, and it, it, it's it's moving. And it's all very nicely done, etc. To to uh, you know market things and uh, to make all sorts of money, which we're very good at. And uh, so this is it's pointing you in the direction that okay, uh, that these people uh, cannot possibly. Uh, possess the um, uh, authority that Christ gave to his church. So the one, one thing is, is the, the excluding the idea of um, a church defecting your, uh, all of these, these awful things, these, these errors, these evils are pointing you in the same direction that these people uh, are not uh, Catholic, didn't have uh, authority to uh, promulgate these things. And that indeed is, uh, that's what you end up with. And the theological explanation for that, while you, theologically you can't explain the church defecting and giving you evil and giving you error, uh, you can't explain that from the point of view of Catholic theology. You can't explain the defection from the faith. Uh, and we've gotten that from Robert Bellarmine. We've gotten that from all these subsequent theologians. We've gotten that from uh, uh, Innocent III. We've got that from Paul IV, telling us that it's possible for uh, the heretic to, um, it's possible to have a heretical pope. If he's public, if this guy is publicly uh, heretical, he's not a true pope. And so that's the, the, the end of the story as far as uh, uh, the question of authority. Mm-hmm. You you say in the article, our recognition that the changes are false, bad, and to be rejected is also an, impl- an implicit recognition that the men who promulgated them did not really possess the authority of the church. All traditionalists, one might therefore say, are in reality said of Acantists. It's just that not all of them have realized it yet. That's right. Uh, Christopher Ferreira, uh, who is one of these the remnant lawyer types who is um, uh, writes anti-state of contest articles. I ran into him at a, um, a talk he gave over at uh, a local Pius the Tenth Church in this area. So I uh, went over and, and, and I told him uh, afterwards that this is this, uh, this just as Karl Rahner had the theory of the anonymous Christian who achieved salvation. That I had the theory of the anonymous sedevacantist uh, who <laughs> would achieve salvation, and perhaps he could hope to count himself, you know, one day among their number. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so but you, needless to say, I, I, I didn't convert him with the allusion to Karl Rahner. But what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> so you walked into a some pious attempt church. They must have turned around and thought the Antichrist had walked in. Well, yeah, it was, uh, you know, the the people holding crucifixes up at you and making the uh, evil eye <laughs> sign, you know. <laughs> that, well, actually, I'm kidding about that, because I um, uh, the church that we have, St. Gertrude's, was the first traditionalist church in the Cincinnati area, so I know a great number of the families uh, over there, and uh, so I went over for it, and uh, most of them were, were, uh, were in fact, very nice, and, and uh, um, uh, it was always uh, nice to see them and kid with them about different things, and, and uh, uh, so it was a very interesting experience. I'm sure. I'm sure. I don't doubt it. Right, we'll move on to the summary, summary of the article here. It's worth um, just going through these very, very briefly and quickly. Um, 
The first summary point is that officially sanctioned Vatican II and post-Vatican II teachings and laws embody errors and or promote evil. I mean, that that's not even up for, surely that's not even up for debate. We've demonstrated that perfectly well. Yeah, you, you become a trad because of that. Yeah. And next, because the church is indefectible, her teaching cannot change, and because she is infallible, her laws cannot give evil. The third, it is therefore impossible that the errors and evils officially sanctioned in Vatican II and post-Vatican II teachings and laws could have proceeded from the authority of the church. Those who promulgate such errors and evils must somehow lack real authority in the church. Canonists and theologians teach that defection from the faith, once it becomes manifest, brings with it automatic loss of ecclesiastical office or authority. They apply the principle even to a pope, who in his personal capacity somehow becomes a heretic. Even popes have acknowledged the possibility that a heretic could one day end up on the throne of Peter. Paul IV decreed that the election of such a pope would be invalid and that he would lack all authority. And since the church absolutely cannot defect, but a pope as an individual can defect, the best explanation for the post-Vatican II errors and evils we have catalogued is that they proceeded or proceed from the individuals who, despite their occupation of the Vatican and of various diocesan cathedrals, did or do not objectively possess canonical authority. You leave it pretty cut and dried there, Father. Well, that was the idea, um, <laughs> because it is uh, the reasoning is is it seems to be pretty clear. I mean, the the different propositions that we've talked about and uh, and that we've uh, we've proven here, it's not doesn't require. Um, once you start with the idea of the the evils and the errors of Vatican II, uh, it should lead you straight to that conclusion. Uh, because of, of of the question of the infallibility and indefectibility of the church, so it's it's as uh, uh, I mean this this um, uh, article has been around uh, for twenty years or more, and as I say, it's gone all over the world, and no one really from the R and R camp has ever been uh, able to uh, poke holes in the the reasoning uh, that you find in that summary. Um, the you have people who uh, posit different objections to say to the contism, but the um, a, a, as far as dealing with this uh, fairly direct and cut and dried argument, uh, no one really has um, uh, successfully uh, uh, successfully done it, or I don't think even. Uh, uh, attempted it. There was one. I th- there was one um, author who wrote in the Angelus um, who uh, tried to um, Laszlo Sciarto, who tried to address some of the points in here, but um, it really didn't uh, did not uh, succeed in answering the points in this argument. So I think that that's a fairly good indication that after uh, uh, really after twenty years. Uh, that the points in it kind of stand the test of time. Well, I must say, coming from the SSPX, this is one of those articles that, uh, as soon as I found it on the internet, it's one of those things that you can't unread. <laughs> once you've read, <laughs> once you've read it, it, it's there. You can't, you can't ignore it. And um, it certainly contributed uh, in no small measure to me deciding to leave the SSPX. 
um, it, and I, I recommend uh, I recommend other people who may be in a similar position to to go and have a look at it. Now, let's have a look at the appendices briefly, um, because it is a well-referenced article. Appendix one is simply um, discusses or, or cites all of the saints uh, and canonists, theologians. It's good support for rad, <laughs> rad treads, those people, you know, those certificantists. Uh, it's good. It's a good reference point for them to say, well, hang on a minute. No, when I'm not saying anything anything wild here. This is what this is what these people have said, and they, their words are way too than my own. Well, well, one one point that I would also make is is you hear people in the R and R camp say, well, you know, you've uh, cherry picked quotes here. That's generally the verb. And I think my response to that is, well, why don't you go back into the orchard and uh, (laughs) see if you can find any other cherries, you know? And my recommendation is don't take a big basket (laughs) because you're not going to find very much. (laughs) Uh, Okay, yeah, I've never heard of that. I'll I'll use that one in the future. The second appendix is uh, interesting, and having recently watched uh, your your new video, Stuck in a Rut, it fills in because you discuss heresy, the sin versus the crime, and in in a roundabout way, you discuss what you call the orthodoxy buddy in your new video, <laughs> that people need to have some kind of warning to, uh, you know, to, to commit a sin. If, if they don't have this warning, then there's no sin committed. Could you, could you briefly discuss that and explain it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, because the orthodoxy buddy is is one of the the great myths of uh, those who have written against Sadovacantism that the uh, that you get a cleric who just sort of runs at the mouth making all sorts of different uh, heretical statements publicly, and he doesn't. <laughs> Uh, he, he can deny the virgin birth, uh, he can deny the uh, incarnation, he can deny transubstantiation, and unless he has someone who tells him that, well, oops, you know, what you said is against um, the Council of Trent or against the Council of Nicaea, uh, the... Uh, uh, he doesn't become a heretic. He he gets uh, two or three warnings from his 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 orthodoxy buddy, and only at that point does he become a heretic. But this is is one of those uh, uh, one of those uh, urban myths, as it were, in in the traditionalist world. The equivalent in in the secular world would be, uh, I think, the alligators in the sewers of New York. It's something that uh, it's a beast that that really doesn't uh, really doesn't exist, and certainly is not recognized in um, canon law. There's a distinction uh, between the sin of heresy, uh, which is the the the, the moral uh, flaw, just as you could have say publicly a sin of of uh, someone publicly uh, commits a sin of. Uh, a murder through, let's say, abortion, and then there is the crime of um, uh, the crime that a person uh, commits. Abortion is also punishable by uh, different um, uh, uh, censures in, in church law as well. So there's a distinction between a, a sin and a distinction between the crime, and that's what it's it's is at work here. That the sin of heresy is what knocks the heretical pope out of office. 
Well, the sin of heresy uh, prevents a uh, public heretic from becoming a pope. So you don't have to have an orthodoxy, buddy. You don't have to have a uh, trial. Right. Okay. Thanks for clearing that one up. <laughs> the third appendix is simply uh, explaining or asking the question, did the new mass come from the church? And you quote the Council of Trent and then many theologians, including Hermann Dorsch, Schultz, Subizaretto, Irigui, but uh, the Council of Trent says, if anyone says that the ceremonies, vestments, and outward signs which the Catholic Church uses in the celebration of masses are incentives to impiety rather than the service of piety, let him be anathema. You then make the point that incentives to impiety, most traditional Catholics of whatever stripe would probably agree, is the best three-word description you can find for the rites and prayers of Paul the Six and Oversordo. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So uh, uh, the thing is that does it come from the Catholic Church? You know, are these people Catholic? That's the next part of the question. You know, <laughs> and um, if you say that, well, uh, you know, they they are Catholic and do represent the Catholic Church, uh, you run into a little problem of an anathema. It's not a, it's not a little problem if you're a Catholic. It's quite it's, it's a whopper of a problem. Uh, and, and no, indeed, it's not. But who are we to judge, right? As as the saying goes. Well, well, of course, of course, yeah. Appendix four deals with deals with the the opposition of we couldn't possibly have a vacancy of the Holy See that lasts this long. Uh, yes, and, and uh, the. Um, the fact of the matter is that yes, you can have a vacancy, and it doesn't. That's for a long time, and it doesn't change the nature of the church. Uh, the um, so I cite the theologian who uh, named Dorsch, who says that um, you have other theologians who talk about the state of the church during the vacancy. That the uh, they say that the life uh, of the church slows down, as it were that there are uh, no new manifestations of life in the way of, of, of disciplines and, and uh, doctrines. And, and uh, in effect, the description that they end up with describes exactly what's going on after, uh, after Vatican II, that the Church continues to exist in those who retain the uh, Catholic faith and, and uh, Catholic morals, but the life of the Church is certainly not vital as and um, uh, active as it was uh, when you had a true pope, so it's it's a, a um, uh, you know that is in fact something that one can uh, um, one can see anticipated in the writings of different theologians. Cajetan, I think, talks about that. Mm -hmm. The fifth appendix. Uh you address the question of where would we get a new pope? Because this, this, is all, this is always one that comes up. Where would we get a new pope? You know, why aren't you conclavists? Then go and elect yourself a new pope. Effectively, there are three, uh, three theories. First is direct divine intervention. The second is the material formal thesis or the thesis or the thesis of uh, Gerard de Laurier. Or the third is an imperfect general council. Could you just briefly explain what these three are? So, well, there are some um, uh, different mystics who talk about uh, Peter and Paul uh, appearing, uh, talk about a great apostasy, and Peter and Paul appearing at the uh, end of time to designate a true pope. 
So these were uh, mystics who, Anamarie Taigi was one, there are a couple of others I forget. Um, so uh, that was one. Uh, the other one, the Gerard Delorier's thesis, basically maintains that, well, if these uh, characters in, in, uh, who occupy the various seas, which of course the Sea of Rome continues to exist, right? Uh, the Sea of Cincinnati continues to exist. Uh, so the, these these are creations of ecclesiastical law. Uh, that um, uh, Gerard's theory basically was that the um, if you have someone who undergoes a conversion to the Catholic faith, who is a heretic who's occupying the sea, the sea, then he um, uh, obtains the pontificate validly. So that was his theory. The other one was was Cajetan. And uh, he said that, uh, well, if the cardinals become extinct, uh, and or maybe even if the city of Rome becomes extinct, nevertheless, the church somehow, through an imperfect general council, would have the right to uh, designate her head. The problem is that the theologians who discuss his theory, you, you get to the point when you turn the page, they don't tell you exactly how this is done. They don't give you the mechanics for it. Mm-hmm. But... Um, uh, you know, nevertheless, again, this demonstrates that um, you know you have theologians who anticipated this uh, this possibility, but it's not really this is not really an objection that you can't figure out where you get a pope uh, because it doesn't address it doesn't make heretics popes by default. So uh, the uh, you know the, the 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 fact that one can't explain this, that one can't project into the future, is not something that therefore uh, you know the guy wearing the clown nose with the uh, communist <laughs> crucifix that okay he becomes the Roman pontiff and uh, you know send in the clowns. So but it it doesn't the two things they're two separate issues. So he, he he doesn't get it um, he doesn't get it by default, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, you can't prove that. So the thing is that that we end up with the uh, life of the church in a practical order, as these theologians describe it, as being um, uh, you know uh, sort of circ- circumscribed and and small and and no new manifestations officially of the life. Uh, of the church being able to take place, but uh, nevertheless, the church continues to exist, even though there is this this the, the, this false um, uh, false group of people who present themselves as Catholic. <laughs> well, bring on the clowns is all I can say, Father. Yeah, uh, it's, it's uh, 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 quite something. I think in, at one point in the stuck in a rut uh, video, if you are. Uh, attuned to uh, the music for the procession of the cardinals, I think you might just notice that particular theme slipped in somehow in the organ music. (laughs) I can't imagine how. And I can't Um, imagine how either. It would be inconceivable. Well, thank you very much, Father. I think that pretty much wraps up our our review of this article. Unless you have anything else you'd like to anything else you'd like to say, or anything any other comment to make? Uh, at this point, simply that that um, read the material in the pamphlet, the article is uh, and in in the book 
uh, where it is is uh, now permanently enshrined. It's it's just something that uh, it's an argument that's easy uh, enough to understand that if Vatican II is evil uh, and uh, the uh, if it produced error and evil, and this is the result of the officially. Um, uh, sanctioned uh, efforts on the part of the those who pretend to uh, be our hierarchs. That in fact that logically leads to the judgment or to the deduction that these people cannot in fact represent the authority of the Catholic Church. It's a very simple uh, argument. It's it's that that giant uh, billboard pointing. Uh, at the post-conciliar popes flashing and saying uh, these guys can't possibly be the vicars of Jesus Christ on earth. Yeah, it's it's the elephant in the room, and I would certainly endorse that and say, not that my opinion should go anyway to do all after yours, but I would say go and read this article. It's a very, very good article. Even if you've read it before, go and read it again. Well, that's it then, pretty much, Father. May I thank you for being my guest today, and may I also wish you good health and continued success in the work you do at St. Gertrude the Great. Uh, thank you very much. It's it's uh, uh, been a pleasure speaking with you. God bless you all. Thank you very much for joining us. Bye now. Bye-bye. If you have any questions for Father Chicada or feedback on this episode, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at antimodernist at truerestoration.org and we will pass along your questions or comments. We would also take this moment to remind you that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who help make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray. For the restoration, I am Matthew Gaskin. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.